Well, after our Easter series uh, from the Gospel of Luke, I'll ask you to once again uh, return to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 19. Again, the book of Acts chapter 19, we'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse 11 and be reading through verse 20. Again, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. I will soon move out of the life stage of middle age, if I live to be 128, and move into the realm of mature but young at heart, or some might say the life stage of not as young as I used to be. For those of us moving into this particular stage of life, our thoughts often turn to our finances, particularly the certainty, the security, the safety, and ultimately the sufficiency of those finances. Quite honestly, for most of my adult life, I've held the view that the U.S. economy and the world economy were pretty much financial houses of cards. That is, they were and they are an unstable balancing act that the slightest tremors, whether they're natural, political, economic, military, cultural, et al., could plunge the whole system into chaos. It is a fact, or at least my core conviction, that in the world of economics and finance, whether personal or corporate, that it is a sure thing that there is no sure thing. Everything in that realm is contingent, inter- and intraconnected, and dependent. Now, don't discount me as hyper-spiritual or one that thinks everything is going to hell and I'm just waiting on the rapture or as the old cliche goes, that I am, not, I am so heavenly-minded that I'm no earthly good. I am one that thinks that economics and finance, the world of commerce and business are important even in some sense, essential. You've heard me say that good government is better than, better than bad government, and biblically speaking, bad government is better than no government at all. In a similar way, profit is better than loss. Gain is better than decrease. A good economy is better than a bad economy. But be reminded, there are no sure things in that realm. But what about the spiritual realm? It might look like the church is a bad investment, perhaps even the proverbial house of cards, a losing stock. But is it? Will the church endure, survive, thrive? Will it? Well, the one who has the only source, or who is the only source, source of certainty, security, safety, and ultimately sufficiency has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, The church and its corollaries, Jesus as its Lord and the gospel as its message will ultimately succeed. Guaranteed, a guarantee not based on the flawed character of men, or, a business, or businesses that may fail, or governments that may collapse. But a guarantee established and stated by the one who rules and reigns. 
the one who has no equal, the one who has all power and authority. The open questions are these, will you, will we, participate in the church's sure success? If the answer to that question is yes, then the essential follow-up question is, how do I invest, how do I participate in that success? How do I not get left out? The answer, the certain, secure, safe, sufficient, and ultimately successful word of the Lord. God says it won't return void. It always yields a profit. Luke says even amidst the hellacious opposition of the ancient city of Ephesus, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It was certain, secure, safe, sufficient, and successful then, and it will continue to be so until indeed Jesus returns. Read with me. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this sure, this certain testimony to your plan, uh, to your power, uh, to that which you have done, to that which you will continue to do through your word. That we would be faithful to that word, that we would rightly divide that word, that through that word, Your son Jesus Christ would be well communicated. He would be exalted. He would be proclaimed as the all-sufficient one. May our hope, may our confidence, may our trust be in this Jesus and Jesus alone. Would he be glorified today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week I spent a little time talking about some of my experience in the field of education, Um, talked a little bit about how my understanding of the principles of learning has informed how I teach, 
how I preached. Uh, quite honestly, I felt like when I left the pulpit, I laid a pretty big egg. Uh, that, uh, but thankfully, some of you actually encouraged me in the course of the week that they enjoyed that and found that uh, informative uh, and useful. So, so thank you for that. But I'm going to return a bit uh, to that theme just momentarily. When we left my hometown of Somerville, Georgia in 1995, the local school system that my children were attending made the announcements that was met with great consternation amidst great conflict that they were going to go to an amended school calendar or, as it's often known, year-round schooling. The reason for that, and I think it's probably a good reason, I think there's some truth to this, is that children over the long summer lose much of what they have learned in the previous year. Therefore, much of the coming year, the, the, the succeeding year, is spent reviewing what was taught the previous year and in some sense feeling like that was a waste of time. Now again, just to remind you, if you learned some of it previously and you filed it in your brain, then when you re- review that material, that review will actually stick to the old and you will learn it more easily. So it's really not a total waste of time. But in the spirit of that, since we took uh, a bit of summer vacation from the uh, book of Acts, let's talk about Acts for just a moment before we fly into this particular text. If you'll remember, Acts is Luke's sequel to his gospel, a gospel that begins uh, with the announced birth of uh, John the Baptist and goes all the way through uh, the ascension of our Lord, and then the book of Acts picks up with the ascension of our Lord, and will take us all the way to the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul uh, in Rome's in the middle 60s A.D. So Luke Acts covers about 70 years. One of the difficult things that we've mentioned several times, we see it again here today. Acts describes what happened, not necessarily what will be imitated and repeated in the church. So, for example, uh, Abraham and David had multiple wives. You understand that is not to be replicated, I would hope. For you young ladies, you remember Ruth put a little of that vanilla extract behind her ear and she went on down there to the threshing floor to make an appeal to Boaz. That's probably not a current standard by which you should engage in courtship, ladies. So again, just because the Bible says certain things happened doesn't necessarily mean that there are certain things that should continue to take place in our modern context. And so certainly the book of Acts tells us a lot about what happened in those days of the early church, a true record. And there's a reason for those things happening as they happened. Acts can be outlined according to the order of the Great Commission from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world. Here in chapter 19, where are we? Ephesus, a part of the uttermost parts of the world. We can divide the book of Acts into two parts, 1 through 12, dealing with primarily the ministry of Peter, primarily focused on the Jews. Chapter 13 picks up with the ministry of the Apostle Paul, going into the world, going to the Gentile world, but still to the Jew first. The book could be entitled, 
the acts or the activities of the Holy Spirit, even the activities of the church, or even the powerful increase of the Word of the Lord. It provides for us a, a bridge from the ministry of Jesus and the apostles to the, the explosive growth of the church. And so we see all of these things and more in the book of Acts, and we come to Paul's ministry in the city the ancient major city of Ephesus, located in modern-day Turkey, a harbor town at that time, a crossroads known for trade, commercial uh, endeavors. And certainly it was a religious center. It was the site of the seventh wonder of the world, the temple to Diana or Artemis. Uh, it was a place of rampant evil. But God did a work there. It reminded me, um, I often tell you that I listened, listened to a podcast by a man by the name of Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And one of his little lines is that basically the closer you get to a coast, the closer you get to a city, the closer you get to a college campus, the more likely you are to see the moral revolutionaries, the more likely you will see, see, will see those that are trying to push the limits of normative uh, society. And I think that's true, and it was true in the ancient world, that these large cities were places of great corruption, great debauchery. Yet Paul invested three years there, and very soon as we get into chapter 20, we'll see the testimony of his great affection for these people and his wonderful experience of what God uh, did through him there in that city. We know that uh, Paul made an initial visit to Ephesus, went back to uh, Jerusalem, uh, then went back to Ephesus where he encountered some disciples, presumably uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples with an incomplete understanding of baptism and of the Holy Spirit. He instructed them, he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they began to speak in tongues, a sign that they were fully included in the church, in the new covenant. We know that he preached for three months to the Jews in the synagogue before they forced him to leave, and he went to a lecture hall known as the Hall of Tyrannus uh, there in Ephesus where he would continue uh, his work. So God's work there was powerful. He worked deeply, and he worked broadly there in that city, again, creating a church there where previously there was none. Now, again, just to remind you of just some, some learning devices, if you want a mental peg, if you want to jot down four words to kind of remember what's going on here today, the four words would be reality, rival, result, and revival. There's four alliterated words, four mnemonic devices just to help you remember to cluster some information, to put a peg in your brain to hang some information on. And so we'll talk about the reality of God's power, the rival to God's power, the result of God's power, and then the revival through God's power. First, beginning in verse 11, the reality of God's power. God was powerfully at work. He was working through Paul in an extraordinary and unusual way, really an unusual 
means there. Now, it, it is interesting, and, and I have to tell you, I learned a new word this week. Now, it wasn't, you know, an ugly word from those two preachers I play golf with, I promise, okay? Uh, no, this, this is, a, this is a, good, a good word, okay? That, that uh, what we see in, that is lost in every translation I look at is a, a literary device called a latotus. Latotus. I'm going to get it right. Latotus. I've never, anybody ever heard of that? Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I, I took a lot of English in, in college and taught English for a year and a half. And that is a literary device. And here's what it is. It is a literary device that makes an ironic understatement expressed by way of a negative. And we see them all through the Bible. In Acts 14, 28, Luke wrote, and they remained no little time. He's expressing something in a negative, but what is he saying? They stayed a good while, okay? Or in Acts 15, 2, it said, he says of Paul and Barnabas, there was no small dissension and debate. What does that mean? They get, got into quite a tussle. My favorite, and I've mentioned to this, you this before, I just didn't know the name of the literary device. But it was pointed out to us in Greek class long ago in Beeson Divine School, you know. And in 1 Corinthians 10.5, Paul wrote of the nation of Israel in the wilderness and God's dealing with them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's a classic understatement by way of negation. God was thoroughly ticked off at those people. And so to call your attention to that reality by way of a literary device, there's an intentional understatement in a negative form. And, but it doesn't come across in English. In the Greek, the Greek phrase that is translated, God was doing extraordinary miracles, is dunamis teutas tukakos, tukasas. Which I, I don't pronounce Greek very well. Most people say I don't pronounce English very well. But the first word is power. In Greek, the, when, when they want to emphasize something, they put it first in word order in the sentence. So what is, one, what is being noted here is powerful things were being done by God. Powerful things not normally done. Powerful things that were outside the realm of the ordinary. Things that could not be explained except to say that God was at work. And of course, by very definition, miracles are that which is extraordinary. They're, they are not normative, okay? They're not to be expected in our realm other than that which is miraculous, namely, the granting of life to a heart of stone in regeneration. That is a miracle, and it still goes on, probably each and every day, as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached. So, miracles, if you really look at them in the Bible, you essentially have Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles, maybe a few other close associates. But in no shape, form, or fashion are, are miracles thought to be the normative way that God works uh, in the world. But yet indeed, God did utilize this at the start of the church. 
The writer of Hebrews refers to it this way, that this gospel, this truth regarding Jesus Christ, we should pay closer attention because God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he worked as he chose to work at that time in supernatural ways, ways that were definitive signs that the gospel was true, that these messengers are authentic, and this was to be believed. Not only was there things like healings, but there were also those that were delivered from evil spirits. Now, let's pause here for just a second and ask the question, well, why don't we see miracles? I mean, let's just, if, 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 if we could genuinely say, put out there on Old Springville Road, miracles performed daily. Bring your sick, bring your problems, bring, bring whatever, and by the power of God, we'll resolve any and all issues. We'd have a crowd. I think, particularly if you know, a couple couple of brave people wandered in, and you know, they they were they were healed of cancer, and they were healed of other diseases, and their financial issues were resolved, and the, their relational issues were resolved. And 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 I would think any thinking person, at least at some point, has to go well. Well, God, that would seem like a good idea. You haven't changed one iota. You're still the God who spoke the world into existence. You're still the God that, that, that keeps everything in its proper order, working according to the principles that you designed it to work accord. You are sovereign over all things. Why? When it would be such a great thing. And yet God has chosen to work in this world to accomplish that which he promised he would accomplish, the building of his church, he has promised to do that through the proclamation of the word and the working of his spirit. He has not granted to the church this idea of doing signs and wonders to authenticate the message. God authenticates the message on his own by working in the heart of the individual, of the individual here through the word and spirit. And think, think about it just a little further. If you'll remember, Paul gets into this business in 1 Corinthians 1. He says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he speaks of the fact that the weak in the world, he uses the weak in the world to shame the strong. There is simply a principle. I think that you see all through the Bible that God chooses not to work through extraordinary means, but through ordinary people and ordinary means, namely the Word of God. He, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, think about Gideon, mighty army. And God says, no, nah, you're not going to need all those men. We're going to pare that thing down. Because I don't want anybody to ever think that this army defeated their enemies by their power. I want everyone to know forever that this victory was won by the hand of Almighty God. There is no other explanation. been listening in the mornings to an, an outstanding exposition by Alistair Begg, the man on the middle cross man, okay, that you saw a few weeks ago, on, um, from uh, First and Second Samuel. 
He's dealing with the life of David. Israel's first king. Buddy, he looked like a king. I mean, he, he, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a man's man. You're scared to death of Goliath. Absolutely scared to death. And the youngest boy in the house of Jesse that was completely dismissed by his brothers shows up. What's the deal here, guys? What, what, what are y'all of, wait, this guy is mocking our God, and our God has made a promise to us, let me go at him. And that very weak boy, with his sling and rocks, slays the great giant, the weak, conquering the strong. And so the church, in some sense, has always been the story of the weak conquering the strong. That, that the ordinary doing the extraordinary. You know, remember before Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 1, 25, he asked, you know, where's the scholar? Where's the great minds? Where's the great people? And God has chosen the weak to work in the world. So it is essentially God has chosen through the means he has defined to do that which he has determined to do. Now, again, God's still God. God can do all the miracles he wants to do, but there are no miracle workers running around in the sense of the way the prophets and Jesus and the apostles uh, were working in the ancient world. Well, not only were the miracles extraordinary, but this very strange phenomenon there in verse 12, that people were actually healed when they would come into contact with a piece of cloth, presumably, a handkerchief or an apron, that had touched the skin of Paul. Wow. We, 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 how, that, that's strange. And of course, what did I say previously? There's a danger to try to duplicate, to replicate what the Bible says happened. Just because the Bible says it happened doesn't mean that we should pursue trying to do it in the same way. And I, I've seen the yahoos on TV. Send me money and I'll send you what? Prayer cloth. Now, I don't know if they sweat on their prayer cloths or not. Maybe they do. Maybe, maybe it costs you extra if they actually sweat on it, okay? But those charlatans would probably just run it under the faucet. They wouldn't even use their own sweat. Come on now, that was a little bit funny. But yeah. Not something to be duplicated. Very strange, very unique, but it's not the only time we see something like this. And I think most commentators come to kind of the conclusion that simply God chose to work even through what might seem to be their superstitious ideas, ideologies. Uh, for whatever reason, he chose to use it. And again, not the only time. You remember the woman with the issue of blood? touching the hem of Jesus' garment. You remember Peter's shadow uh, falling on people there in the earliest days of the church and people uh, being uh, healed. But again, miracles simply are not the norm for the age as much as we hear people touting them and claiming them. Uh, they are indeed uh, not uh, to be pursued and really not to be expected 
uh, but we never would discount what God can do. My typical way of expressing this reality, I do not doubt for one moment what God can do. You understand? God can heal according to his sovereign, unstated, secret purpose. He doesn't have to tell me about, okay? But I do not know what God will do in any particular situation. All right, so we see there the reality, the testimony to the power of God on display, sick people being healed, diseases leaving them, and even evil spirits uh, coming out of them. We move forward to that second or the rival to God's power, and I will state at the outset, there are no rivals to God's power. Think of it this way, in the athletic realm, Teams may play each other every other week, but it's not a rivalry unless it's legitimately competitive, unless they're teams that are in some level equally matched, that there's an opportunity for both to win. That's the only way you have a true rivalry. God has no rivals, okay? There are no contenders. There are only pretenders, okay, to, that would seek to rival God. And so we see here this business of counterfeiters. We've seen them before um, in different ways. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the notoriety of generosity without the true work of generosity, and God killed them as a lesson for the church and for, throughout the course of history. You remember uh, the magician Simon in Acts 18. He was so impressed by the power being demonstrated through the apostle Peter. He, he said, hey, I'll, buy, I'll pay you for that. And again, Peter rebuked uh, them. And so uh, these counterfeiters attempt to use Jesus uh, for their own ends. And we're told that these guys are itinerant, Jewish evangelists. In other words, they bounce around from place to place to place. Uh, they're the seven sons of the Jewish high priest Sceva. Most commentators say that's probably, while Luke records their claim, it's probably a bogus claim on their part. They were just trying to, you know, uh, uh, name drop, okay? Or, or to say it another way, they're kind of like a tribute band. You know, if you, if you heard these, you know, this is an Allman Brothers tribute band. This, they, they're not the real thing. They're just trying to act like they, they are Fleetwood Mac or Bad Company or something like this. And so these were tribute exorcists, I suppose, a tribute to the high priest. But these exorcists were known throughout the ancient world, and they're mentioned a time or two through the gospel. And we should be warned about those that want to use Jesus' power but not submit to his authority in their lives. It is a dangerous thing to trifle with Jesus. It is a dangerous thing to trifle with Satan. But who's more dangerous, Jesus or Satan? Don't name the name without bowing the knee to his authority. Essentially, they were like many of us. We want God's blessing. 
without surrendering to Jesus' lordship. Now, folks, don't look at me real spiritual. That is a lifetime process of putting that to death because we all are guilty. Yeah, I want your stuff, God, but I got the way figured out. And it's a dangerous thing to trifle with God and his name and his authority and his power. And, of course, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, that he was aware that there would be people that would even cast out demons and do all kinds of miracles, but yet what? They would not know him as Lord and Savior. And so it is a dangerous thing to trifle, to dabble, whether you're dabbling with Jesus or whether you're dabbling with the devil. And so these itinerant Jewish exorcists began to make the attempt to cast out the demons. Their, their um, pronouncement there in verse 13, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Well, that sounds powerful, don't it? That sounds like I've got an intimate and powerful relationship with the authority, with the one that I'm, I'm trying to utilize to do this great thing. Now, what we see here in verse 15 is the ancient. Get your trash out of my yard. Little, little trash talk here. Now, one thing that I find incredibly humorous is these pop-ups on social media. Typically, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan. I, I, yeah, I love it. Larry Bird will look over at the bench and say, you got this stiff defended me? Listen, I'm fixing to come down the court. I'm going to go right there. That's my spot right there. And I'm going to drop one from 22 feet, and he can't stop me. Well, that's what goes on right here. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? What are you doing here? Get out of my face. Yeah, yeah. I, I ain't scared of you. And so, what happened? Verse 16. The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and beat the far out of them, or beat the tar out of them, whichever way you want to say it. But yeah, gave them a literal beating. And again, the reality that it is not unusual in demonic possession for them to have extraordinarily, to be extraordinarily strong. And of course, what? To use that strength for violent ends. And so, again, as I, I tell you all the time, don't mess with it, don't, don't trifle with the occult. It is dangerous. And it is all around us. And uh, you go, if you, if you look at children's programming in the last five years, ten years, and, and, and really you can go back 30 years, but you will find not only the uh, moral per perverse agenda being illustrated and, and affirmed, but you will find various types of references that are nothing more than references to occult spirituality that they're trying to suck your children into.
okay? And I'm telling you, do not mess with it, okay? And so, just along that line, not only do we see it in the children's programming, and I, I honestly don't get this, and you know, but how is it that our culture has become so absolutely obsessed with vampires, zombies, witches, fortune tellers, and the like? I mean, if I see a movie advertised, there's a, a 90% chance it's some type of malevolent spirit at work in the plot of that movie. Well, again, do not mess with it. So we see the reality. We see the rival. Now, let's look at the result of God's power, verse 17. These guys were, got the tar beat out of them. They left naked, not naked, naked. Y'all know the difference, okay? And so they left naked. They didn't have any clothes on. They were beaten, okay? Verse 17 says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So this mighty demonstration of the power of God, coupled with a demonstration of the power of Satan, in, in again, beating these guys, of defeating uh, these counterfeiters, became widely known. Now, notice there in verse 17, to, became known to all the residents there of Ephesus. Now, what does that mean? That is hyperbole. That is an intentional exaggeration. Did 100% of the citizens of the, of the city of Ephesus know all about this? No. What is he saying? A whole bunch. A lot. Show enough, a lot of people heard about this. And their response was they became fearful. Now, in that great hymn, Amazing Grace, you remember the stanza? It was grace, it was by God's grace that me, who was dead in trespasses and sin, that had no concern about my sin and no fear of the holiness of God, but when God made me alive, I became fearful regarding my sin and concerned about standing before a holy God. My heart began to fear before my fears were relieved. And I keep saying this over and over and over, but you cannot be saved until you first know that you're lost, that you're guilty before God, that you deserve hell, that you must come to fear the holy wrath of God, that were it poured out upon you, you would have no reason to object. You would have to say, I am receiving that which I deserve. And when you understand that which you deserve, you're in a situation, you are prepared to experience and acknowledge and extol the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and appreciate the magnitude of the grace by which you're saved. You're ready to say with vigor, with passion. You're ready to sing, not amazing grace, that's the way to sound. But you're ready to belt out, to confess with the assembled witnesses of heaven, that grace 
is amazing that it saved a wretch like me. And so, this was going on. Fear fell on them. And out of that fear came those who would praise the name of the Lord Jesus. And beyond that, in verse 18, this unique, well, really not unique, but I guess unique kind of in the biblical accounts, that many of those who were believers, they were now saved as a demonstration that they were no longer relying upon the occult, relying upon witchcraft, relying upon superstition. They took the materials that were a part of that practice and they brought them and they burned them in a big bonfire. Now, just so you, I'm not a book burner, but okay? Just so, you, I mean, I, that's not a thing. And I can remember uh, the revivals or what passed for revivals in the 70s uh, being. Uh, encouraged to bring our Elton John tapes and eight-track tapes and throw them in the fire, okay? Uh, I never did, so maybe that's why y'all have such problems with me now. But again, this was a total renunciation of their association with this evil, a, a total denial of evil's hold upon their lives, and it was costly. Now, my translation says that this material... Uh, counted up to 50,000 pieces of silver. There's a little discussion about exactly how much that was worth, okay? Uh, some would say that these were uh, denarius, which would be a day's wage. So 50,000 days of wages for a worker. Now, let's, let's, let's translate that into modern perspective. $10 an hour. $80 a day, do the math, $4 million bucks in today's earnings, okay? Now, others say that really it's not the denarius, it's, it's a lesser uh, denomination, but still it's a great deal of money, enough money to feed 100 families for 500 days. So whatever it was, it was a costly testimony to the sincerity of their commitment and their knowledge that they were no longer going to be dabbling in evil. They were completely renouncing it, destroying the association. And that some of these materials from the ancient world have survived. You can find them in museums. And there are actually incantations and descriptions for potions and all of this stuff where evil can be worked. And so, real revival came to the city of Ephesus. And they burned the materials associated with that. Again, they put their hand to the plow and they didn't look back. They took the materials associated with their former life and they threw them in the fire. All right, we've seen the reality, the revival, the rival, I mean, the result. And now let's say just a quick word about the revival through God's power. Verse 20 Luke often makes a summary statement that kind of summarizes what's been going on. There's a summary statement in chapter 6, verse 7, one in chapter 9, verse 31, one in chapter 12, verse 24, one in 16, 5. His summary is, so the word of the Lord continued to increase 
and prevail mightily. That God was at work in the city and in the church through the means of the proclamation of this word of the Lord, the gospel of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony to a sufficient and an effective atoning sacrifice by which men and women and boys and girls could be saved from their sins. A, a testimony, a gospel proclamation of the availability of God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I often look at the culture and think how decadent. Sometimes I think about the city of New Orleans, city of Las Vegas, and I think, what a debauched place. I'm not a fan of either city, just quite honestly. Uh, yeah. And yet... I don't think Birmingham, Alabama, or Huntsville, Alabama, or Mobile, Alabama, or Atlanta, Georgia, Somerville, Georgia, or Clay, Alabama, has a whole lot to be proud about in standing in contrast to those particular cities. No matter how evil the con cultural context, how dark the debauchery and depravity, God's power is greater, God's Word is sufficient to save. Do we live at the most evil moment in history? Hard to say. But I suspect that the neo-pagans of today, the secular and religious liberals of today, uh, most of the modern moral revolutionaries would object. They would be incensed at what went on daily in the temple of Diana in the city of Ephesus. As morally perverse and compromised as these people are, they would blush at what went on in this ancient city, which again reminds us of what? That the gospel is still the power of God to salvation. And so, as they did, we still do. We proclaim the truth of an inspired and errant, infallible, and again, I want to add, sufficient word to bring about that which God would do, the building of the church, again, the conversion of the soul. Uh, we don't need sweaty handkerchiefs and aprons. We need this. We need this, okay? That's what we have. That, that is the deposit. This is the deposit God has given us to take into the world and to continue to utilize among ourselves so that the word of the Lord will be demonstrated as being powerful and effective to save the lost and sanctify the saved. That's what God does through His Word. We teach it, we preach it, we talk about it around here, day and night. Sometimes we disagree about things, but iron sharpens iron. Some, sometimes you might persuade me that what you think is right. More often than not, you're going to sharpen the reason I disagree with you, okay? But that's okay. That's the way things work sometimes. We, as I heard Kay Arthur say years and years ago, we're going to stick with the stuff. And as long as you're stuck with me on the staff, the stuff will be stuck with, namely the stuff of the Word of the Lord that I believe, that I believe, 
will continue to increase and will and has and always will prevail until our Savior returns to claim his bride and again to judge all that has opposed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, for your truth, for an example of what is real, of what is right, of what is to be imitated, repeated. That is the proclamation of your word. Uh, Lord, may we never get caught up in the sideshow mentality of our world. May we believe, may we be confident that you have given us uh, the ordained means to accomplish that which you have ordained as the end. Uh, For your glory and for the good of your people, we ask these things. Amen.